Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church, to uh, Gateway City. It's, it's good to be here with you. My name's Derek, and uh, I'm the executive pastor at Gateway. And if we've not met before... Uh, I look forward to perhaps doing that today before you get the chance to leave. And I leave. Andrew is on a little bit of a break at the moment. I think he's back next Sunday. Is that? No, he's not back next Sunday. Another couple of weeks. Hannah's preaching next Sunday, which is even better. Um, but uh, a little bit of a break for the pastor at this time of year, I think, is a good idea. So I'd be praying for him and the family as they as they have their time off. I hope your time over Christmas New Year has been great too, that there's been a time for reflection, a time of celebration, a time of just engaging with people you love, and uh, there's been a time of refreshing somewhere in there. Today I want to speak, a, we're, we're doing a series called uh, Summer Psalms, and we're going to draw off some of the psalms in the next few weeks and just sort of speak out of those things. What I'd like to speak about today comes out a little bit of the song that Izzy and Erica just ministered to us. Thank you, Izzy and Erica, too, by the way, for just a great time of ministry. Yes, hands together for them, please. Appreciate that. But there's something that, uh, that's come out of a psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 27 in a minute. I'm just going to kind of set it up for a little bit before we get there. But if you want to turn to Psalm 27 in your Bible, put your finger in there. We'll get there in a minute. But I want to look at the life of David. I want to look a little bit about this man who wrote 40 of the 150 psalms. You know, what is it that God did inside David that we got to see through the chronicles of the psalms that might help us walk with God a little bit better. So if that's the thesis for this morning, that's where I'm going. And probably the focus I want to look at is this idea of waiting on God. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? And the reason why this is really worth understanding is because the Bible is full of this phrase, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. All of the greats spoke about waiting on the Lord. They all spoke about how out of their life, Moses spoke about it in Psalm 91. Isaiah spoke about it in, uh, in the great uh, Isaiah 40, which every plaque in Kurong has currently got if you need to find it. They that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. What is this idea of waiting on the Lord? It feels to me like if we can get a grasp in the Christian life on what it is to wait on the Lord, we will actually get the capacity of God drawing into our life more effectively. There's something that strengthens on the inside of us when we wait on the Lord. The challenge is, I find with Scripture, and I don't know if you're the same, but we often find in Scripture what we should do, but not often how to do it. And, but David's life through the Psalms chronicles a little bit of how he did things. And we see a little bit of his life kind of laid out for us there in front of us. David is one of those guys that lived his life on the pages of the Bible, uh, which is both great for us but bad for him because we got to see all of his strengths and weaknesses and failings. But we get to learn something too. We get to learn something about how God works, which I think is really important. So we're going to look at this man called David. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? How did he learn to wait on the Lord? A little bit of background on David, just to refresh our memory, January the 2nd, in case you've forgotten. David was anointed king over Israel, but he was anointed king at 15 years of age. 
The prophet Samuel comes to the house of Jesse because God said go and they look at all the great big strong men standing in front of the prophet and, and he goes down the line, no, 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 no and he gets to the end and it's still no and he says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, well, well, there's David. He's out uh, tending the sheep. And uh, well, go and get him, Samuel says. So David comes in, he's 15. He stands in front of Samuel and God says, this is the man. Because I don't look on the outside, I look on the heart, God says. I see the heart of a young man who loves me. But David had to wait 22 years for the fulfilment of the promise of being king. It was 15 years he was crowned king over Judah, but united Israel not for another seven years later. So 22 years until the fulfilment of the prophecy by the prophet Samuel. Incredible. This is a long time to wait for the promise to come to pass. And in between that, David went through what most people would call hell or high water. You know, that's what it looks like. If you want to know what hell or high water looks like, read what happened to David between getting the prophecy and fulfilling it as king. Incredible life. David loved God, but David had to learn to trust God. David knew that there was a difference between loving God and trusting God. Has anybody found that? It's one thing to love God, to fall in love with God, but it's another thing then to hang on to God and trust God in spite of whatever else is happening. David realised that. David knew that. David discovered that. And God taught him how to walk with him during times of great pressure. See, resting in God when it's good, is fairly easy to do, really. When times are good, to rest in God is, you know, most people would say, I know how to rest in God when things are good. The challenge of resting in God when things are difficult is the hard bit because everything in you wants to do something about the situation. Everything in you wants to respond. Everything in you wants to react. There's a fight to do. There's a retaliation. I need to worry a bit more. I need to run. I need to complain. I need to work harder. I need to blame someone. I need to do something, but I've got to do something right now because this is not working out like I want it to work out. Has anybody ever been there before? Yeah. And in the midst of that, we want to do something. And God is saying the exact opposite to us. He's saying, no, wait on me. But I want to do something, God. I, I want to. And when we look at the life of David, David did everything that I just mentioned. He worried, he retaliated, he fought, he complained, he blamed, he worked harder. He did a whole bunch of things. And we're going to have a quick snapshot look at what David did and how God taught him something different. David wrote about 40 psalms, and we're going to jump now. If you've got your fingers still in Psalm 27, we're going to jump there now. We're going to be on the screen for you behind. We're not going to read the whole psalm, but just a, a few of the verses in it. Let's jump in. Verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, David writes. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh... My enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me, he shall 
set me high upon a rock. Fast forward to verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Most scholars believe David wrote that at the end of his life. He was looking back and he was saying, of all the things I did well, of all the things I did badly, one thing I learned, I learned to wait on the Lord. And that all looks good. It's, it's so much easier to look back on situations with retrospect and say, oh yes, I, I see how I worked with God. But David didn't always work with God. David actually mucked it up a lot. If we keep going forward in the David story for a minute, we know the story that David goes up against Goliath. He takes the five smooth stones. He throws one at his head. It knocks Goliath over. He goes and cuts his head off brings his head back. David is celebrated. Saul decides after that to bring David close. Don't think for a minute it was because he loved him. He wanted to keep his, what's the saying? Keep your, enemy, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. David was growing in popularity. But David also had this amazing musical gift. And so when, when Saul would be vexed by his many demons, the musical gift of David would soothe his heart. And so David by day was starting to lead the army, growing in, in expertise and in uh, over leadership over many, many more people. And as he was growing in expertise, he was growing in favour with the people and the people were starting to sing his praises. And at night time, he was playing his harp for Saul. Except one night, Saul decided he had enough of him and so he grabbed a spear and tried to pit him against the wall, but he missed and David escaped. By this stage, David, of course, because he's killed Goliath, is living with one of Saul's, well, he was the promised princess, wasn't he? Michael was his sweetheart that he was promised if he killed Goliath. He's living in the house. And so Saul says to his men, hey, follow him, kill him tonight. And so they lay wait for him outside the house. But Michael, seeing that, realising what's happening, lets David down through the back and David escapes. And David's on the lamb, he's on the run. And so David from there runs because the word is he is now enemy number one of the kingdom of Israel of Saul and Saul's out to get him. Saul's got the resources of the entire army. Saul is going to have his neck. Saul has decided whatever has happened to David, whatever great things he's brought to Israel has had enough, he's going to eliminate his enemy. And so David runs. And where does David run to? He runs to Ramah. He runs to a place where Samuel lives, Samuel the prophet, who prophesied over him originally the promise. So he runs to Ramah and he, he goes to Ramah and he hides with Samuel at Ramah. And of course Saul finds that out, so Saul sends a garrison of army to try and kill him. But as they get close to where, Saul, where, where they are at Ramah, they fall on the ground and start prophesying. So Saul says, well, that won't do. That's not going to help. So he sends another garrison of army to go and get him again. And as they get closer, they fall down before they get to Ramah and start prophesying. And Saul says, well, that's no good. I'll send a third garrison. So he sends a third. And they also fall down and start prophesying. You see the pattern. So Saul says, that's it. I'll go myself. So Saul gears up and goes with his entourage, gets close to Ramah, and he falls down and starts prophesying. 
This is not going well for the whole vendetta against David plan. But David is safe. And here's the thing, folks, I want you to grab. If David had really learnt to wait on the Lord at that stage in his life, he'd have stayed at Ramah. He'd have been as safe as he could ever have been. Why? Because he was where God wanted him to be. God would have protected him at Ramah. But if you read your Bible in 1 Samuel 19, you'll see he didn't stay at Ramah. He got agitated because he could see that Saul was intent. So rather than rest in the Lord, rather than wait on the Lord, rather than do the things that actually Psalm 27 says he should do, he runs, he panics. What would you do? Would you stay? Would you wait on the Lord? Would you rest in the Lord with Samuel the prophet at Ramah? Would you wait and let God defend you or would you run? David ran. David ran from Ramah and he went to a place called Nob. And at Nob is where the high priests live, Elimelech. And Elimelech was there with all the other priests and the high priest was a very high calling. It was the, it was the man of God. It was the, the highest office, the highest religious office, the spiritual office for the nation of Israel. And Elimelech was the high priest. And so David ran there. When he got there, he says to Elimelech, he lies. And he says, I'm on the king's business. And Elimelech says, Aren't you being looked for by the king? Isn't the king trying to kill you? Oh, no. I'm here on the king's business. He says, I'm actually here for some food. Do you have any food? And Elimelech says, I don't have any food, but uh, I have got all the consecrated bread and wine that we use as part of the Passover. Oh, that will do, he says. Go and get that food. And so they feed the consecrated food to David and his men. David's operating under a lie. He's running. He's panicking. He's concerned. He's agitated. And then David says, do you have any weapons? And then uh, Elimelech says, well, we've only got this one. It's the sword of Goliath. And David looks at it and he says these words, ah, the sword of Goliath, there is none like it. And yet a few years before, not that long before, David had gone up against this Philistine and says, you come against me with swords and spears, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now the sword, ah, there's none like it. Oh, I'll take that. So he takes the sword of Goliath as his weapon of choice. Can hardly lift it. But he's running. He's panicking. He doesn't know what to do next. His mind is a mess. It's not sitting waiting in the Lord. It's actually grabbing at anything he can grab. He's told a lie to the priest. As a result of that lie, Saul catches up, gets to Nob, finds out that Elimelech had engaged the conversation, had fed him and the sword had gone and he kills all of the the high priests and all of the priests that are there, all of them except for one, Abiathar, the son of Elimelech, who ends up joining David. The next one in line to be the high priest joins David. God works all things out for good, but that's not the plan of God. God's salvaging the situation. Abiathar joins David because he's on the run too now. And so David runs from there and he runs to Gath. When he gets to Gath, that's the hometown of the Philistines. That's the capital city of where Goliath lived. And David thinks, I'll be safe here, I'll hide here because Saul won't come after me here because this is the enemy of Israel. But David forgets that as he's walking through the streets, he's public enemy number one. David walks through the streets of Gath because everyone knows who he is. He's the guy that killed Goliath, the champion. So of course, he's noted, he's seen, he's identified and he's brought before the king. And Ashish, King Ashish of the Philistines looks at this particular guy and he says take him to the dungeon 
And while he's in the dungeon, David writes this psalm, Psalm 56. And we know he wrote Psalm 56 because if you read in your Bible, it'll say a Mitchum of David when the Philistines captured him at Gath. So you don't have to be a scholar to know that. It's actually written there. So there he goes in and he says, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he would oppress me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. But this is not true. But he wants it to be true. His heart aches for it to be true. Oh God, that I could trust in you. When I am afraid, I trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. He's expressing something in his heart that he knows is true, but he's not living it. He's not living it. Why? Because he's dragged out of the dungeon. He's taken up towards the king and they're going to sentence him. They're going to kill him. But instead of resting in the Lord, he pretends to be mad. He foams at the mouth and he acts like he's lost his mind. And this court of King Ashes goes, he's a madman. Don't have anything to do with him. Cast him out into the street. And David slips out and gets away because they think he's mad. But David's gone back on his wits again. He's, he's fighting according to his own mind. He's not resting in the Lord. David's life is an interesting life. His heart knows what to do, but his mind and emotions won't allow him to do it. Have you ever felt that tension? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like the right thing in my heart to do is to trust in the Lord, but I don't know how to calm this mind and emotions that's just spinning so much? I don't know how to get inside the stillness of that trust before God. The heart of my message today really is, how do I move from knowing what I should do and then actually do it? How do I actually do it? David writes at the end of his life, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. When David used the word wait, there's a number of different translations of this word. It's worth just pulling it apart for a minute. Because within the word wait, there are two meanings. There is firstly the meaning of posture and then there's the meaning of process. Weight means both, a posture and a process. The posture word comes out of three Hebrew words. Don't be too uh, worried about this, but for the scholars in the room, your chal, dumior and korkor, they're two Hebrew words, three Hebrew words actually. And out of that three, they all sort of mean the same thing. They mean still and quiet in the midst of pain. Wait on the Lord means be still and quiet in the midst of pain. Be still and quiet. But how do I get still and quiet? When the pain is real, when the turmoil is real, when the confusion is real, when the answers aren't coming, how do I get still and quiet? My words today, if I was to summarise, it would be this. Remember and release. Remember and release. I need to remember who God is. 
part of stilling the inner turmoil of my heart is I have to remember who God is. I've got to draw back to memory now this who God is. The Bible talks about it, magnify the Lord, bring him up in his size, not because he needs to get bigger, he's big. He's big. But sometimes he's small in my mind compared to my problem. I need to magnify the Lord. I need to bring God. Who is God? I need to remember who God is. I need to fill my heart with the expanse of God. God who can do anything. God who's the God of the impossible. God who flung the heavens and earth together surely is a God that I can trust in. Remember. And then release. I need to release my need to do something. I need to remember how big God is and I need to release my desire to do something. And every part of it. I'm not saying we do nothing. What God wants us to do is do God things, not human things. There are things to do, but not human things. And we need to discern the difference. There are things in the spirit, things in faith. There's a, there's a posture I'm going to work to get into. I'm going to climb into God. I'm going to climb into his word. And in that word, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to work hard to stay in the waiting phase as God works for me. When I'm conscious of his presence and I'm able to start hearing his voice, I will feel hope. Hope will come out of that. I just want to give you a couple of thoughts here that help you remember who God is. If this is your season right now, take some of these scriptures, place them somewhere where you can see them, remind yourself, meditate on them. They'll help you. David wrote in Psalm 139 verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand when I awake I am still with you. This is a powerful thought. Just leave it up on the screen if you can, just for a little while. If I should count them, they'll be more in number than the sand. Have you ever found that when you're in the midst of great turmoil, your heart says God is far from me? But it's actually not true. The truth of what's happening in the realm of the Spirit, if you could see it in the Spirit, is that the thoughts of God towards you as you sit here right now are more than sand on the seashore, David said. This is not just a metaphor that's saying, wouldn't it be good if that was true? David is actually saying, this is who God is. God's thoughts towards you are streaming at you at such a rate, it'll be like being dumped with a dump truck of sand. There's so many thoughts about you God's coming at you with. He's coming at you. He's coming at you. It's like you're being peppered. Now, now I say, well, I don't feel that right now. Well, that's, that's another thing, isn't it? It may not be true what you feel. Well, I don't feel that God's with me. Yes, but what if you could get out of that thought and get into a new one that says, actually, the Word of God promises me that it's like a truckload of sand hitting me right now. So many thoughts God is coming to us. I wonder if I could start to sit in those thoughts. Did, did you ever think for a minute that God knows exactly how you feel and the thoughts that he's sending towards you right now are the exact comfort and remedy you need? If only I could hear them. If only I could hear them. How do I first hear them? Well, I need to first believe they're coming at me. I've got to actually believe it's happening. If I don't believe it's happening, well, then I'm not going to open my heart to the truth that God's actually streaming at me right now. 
the bandwidth of what's coming at me from God right now is so great that I can't number them. So you're not going to run out of this content that God's going to send you if I could just get in the stream and hear it. See, something shifts in the inner posture when you start to remember this is who God is. Isaiah 55 is worth combining with this because Isaiah had the same revelation, but he says, for my thought, he's quoting God here, for my thoughts, God's thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and so are my thoughts than your thoughts. So these thoughts that God is sending to me, they're higher thoughts. They're going to draw me up and out. They're, going to, they're not going to necessarily be identifying with what's happening because God's saying, whatever's happening, I get it's happening, but I'm sitting up here. Not above you, not in a place where it's irrelevant. I'm at a place I want to draw you up into so you'll see it somewhat differently. You'll interpret it somewhat differently. The human being has the ability to do this, but only in retrospect. In the time, we don't know how to do it. But if we'll go with God, we get this opportunity to see things more circumspectly. His thoughts are higher. Then he goes on to say this. For as the rain comes down, get this picture, it's beautiful. And snow from heaven and does not return there but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. So there's this word that's coming from God. It's like sand on the seashore, David says. But Isaiah says, no, it's actually like rain that falls. It's like snow. I don't mind. You pick the one you love. I see them all and see that's all wonderful. They're just pouring down on me. They're pouring down over me. And as they're coming down, it's not coming unnecessarily. It's coming to water something. It's coming to water seed. It's not going to water the seed of my doubts. It's not going to water the seed of my circumstance. It's not going to water the seed of my insecurities. It's going to water the seed of my faith. And God's going to want to draw me up and out of it to see something different because of this that's coming out. So I've got to be open to the fact that my perspective and posture is going to change now. I'm going to start to shift. I'm going to start to see something different now. And then he goes on to say this in Isaiah And it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, these drops of rain are pregnant with answers. They have got everything that you need in them. And and God's saying, the words that are coming out of my mouth that are streaming towards you like sand or like rain or like snow is streaming down that when you catch hold of them, they will germinate something in you. They will change something. And so your posture will start to shift. You're going to start hearing yourself say things of faith in spite of what's going wrong. You're going to say, well, I'm starting to see this differently. God's doing something. I've got a picture in my head that I didn't have before. And God's going to start to build this picture of faith in you. You're going to say, it's uncanny. But I actually don't feel the pain of this as much anymore. God's with me. I can feel this with me. He's taking me through. Can Can I say this for what it's worth? I don't think it's true. People often, say, people often say, I don't know what God's doing, I'm just hanging on by faith. And I understand where that comes from. But I'd like to challenge that by saying this. If I've got that many words from God coming, he can explain to me what's going on. I can find out. But we just don't ask him. God, why is this happening? 
what would you have me do? What is the answer? What is the key? What, who should I talk to? Is there something else I should do differently? Is there something I should say differently? Am I missing something here, God? But I'm not going to strive in that. I'm going to open myself to that. And there's a difference. Can you see? There's a difference. Sometimes it's do nothing and sometimes it's do something. But as I said before, it's not do nothing. It's do God things. It's do God type of things. What is God asking me to do? And so I want to remember and I want to release. Remembering and release says, this is the God I'm sitting under. This is the God that's pouring out towards me. This is who he is. Now, if you're sitting here right now and you're in the great, you're in a purple patch, this is the best time of your life, God's still streaming towards you those thoughts. It's not that he changes. It's not just reserved for the times things are bad. God's doing that now, which is great. I say, let's walk with God in the good and the bad and learn to hear his voice so that he can help us. The other part of this word weight, we looked at first, the first part of the weight was this posture. The other is this idea of process. It comes from a word in the Hebrew called kovor. And David used this a lot. David used this part of the, this particular definition a lot in his writings. And it actually means to twist and bind together. To twist and bind together. Imagine in your mind a rope or a vine that's been twisted together bound together. It's, it's the same idea. A rope is more than the sum of its parts. A rope is bits of strand that have been woven together, twisted together, but because they've been twisted together, they've become stronger. So it's no longer one strand, two strands, three strands, four strands. It's all of that, but it's now one rope. The process causes strength to come to the rope. It's stronger. It's the same picture as the picture of a vine. It's, it's, it's when a vine uh, wraps itself around a tree and it draws the strength off the tree in order for the vine to grow. In other words, the vine cannot actually prosper unless it draws the strength out of the tree. That's the picture of this weight on the Lord. So this is the doing bit now. The posture bit is I've received from God, I, I'm open myself to God, but the process now is I'm going to entwine myself around God. I'm going to allow His ways to become my ways, His thoughts to become my thoughts. I'm actually going to give myself so that the life that I feel is coming out of the strength of God, like a vine that's twisting itself. I'm going to literally, if you, if you allow me to say it this way, I'm going to suck the life out of God into me so I become strong. Now, this is where the metaphor doesn't work so good because the tree normally dies because the vine takes over. That obviously doesn't happen with God. But it's the same idea. We're not going to suck the life out of God and kill him. But we are going to take the strength out of God because God has infinite strength to offer. So God, David learned to exchange his weaknesses for God's strength, his anxieties for God's love and peace, his ability to govern and lead with God's wisdom and authority. And it repositioned him. Remember, release, and reposition yourself. No matter how you feel today, God is very close. That is a truth. And I have to now start to adopt that phrase. I have to start to change my confession. I have to start to shift my expectation. I've actually got to stop thinking anti-God thoughts that say God is far. God is not far. He's close. And if he was close, how would that change how I feel? 
Jesus gave us the same picture in John 15 and verse 5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, think about that for a minute. You say, well, hang on a minute. I, I got saved when I was 45. I did a whole lot of things before I met Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus is not talking about stuff that's burnt up and thrown away. Yeah, our life is something. We do lots of things, don't we? But the things that remain are the things that are done by faith with God, the things of the kingdom of God, the things that last, the things that are eternal, the things that really matter, the things that at the end of the day when I leave this world, whatever I leave, I leave, or what I take with me are the things of faith. I take the, and I take the presence of God with me. I take the, the, the relationship of God with me. I take my standing with God with me. I stand in the presence of God. That's the only thing I really take with me. Jesus is saying, without me, you'll do nothing because the things that remain are the things that matter. So he's saying there's a whole bunch of things you'll do. What I love about it is Jesus isn't saying walking with me is fruitless. Walking with me produces fruit. It actually, you'll be able to see a life that's walking with God. It'll look like something. It has fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. Why? Because that's the stuff we do that at the end of the day, doesn't last. And if they and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in me in you, sorry, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. It's the same picture. Can you see it? Jesus is saying, if you abide in me, posture yourself in me. If my words abide in you, you know, the sand that's falling, the rain that's falling, the snow that's falling, Old Testament, it's still New Testament too. There's words from heaven that come to abide in you. And if these words abide in me, ask what you want. By this my Father is glorified. In other words, you actually start to glorify God in the earth through this practice. It's not the stuff that I do for God, it's the stuff I birth out of that relationship that remains. I don't know if we've got the picture of the vine and the branch for a minute. I just want to point something out. This is finding one that you don't have to pay royalties on is really hard to do. <laughs> Such a cheapskate I am. But here's a vine and a branch. Uh, grapes, I, I think. Uh, I'm not much of a vitriolist, but I think it is. A gra- a, a, but you have a look for a minute. If you, this is not the best example, but you've got the vine and you've got the branch. The challenge you have in anything is working out where the branch stops and the vine begins and where the vine stops and where the branch begins. If you actually... If you've actually got a vine in your backyard, try and pull it out and I'll say to you, try and label for me the branch and the vine, the vine and the branch. Now, you'd be able to technically work out where, but when you hold it up as one plant, it's hard to see the difference. Jesus is giving you an example here where he's saying, as you start to abide in me and my words abide in you, you're going to start to look like me. You're going to start to look like me in the earth because this is how I walk with the Father. I posture myself in Him and His words abide in me. Now you stand in me and let my words abide in you and you'll look like me. Jesus is posturing an identity piece here to say, hey, this is what the people of God look like. 
There's these people who stand in the midst of circumstance and wait on God. And as they wait on God, they shift how they talk because they start to see it through different eyes. They start to declare things by faith that other people are not declaring. Jesus is communicating a picture of intimacy. This morning, I want to ask you this question. Waiting on the Lord. It's one of the things that will carry us all through 2022. One thing that will be common to all of us. I don't know where your journey will go this year. I don't know where mine's going to go, to be honest. But I know this. The thing that unites us together is if we will wait on the Lord together, God will show us how to walk together. He'll show us how to walk through what we're going to go through. God will give us the peace and the strength. He'll give us the strategies. He'll give us the ideas. And that he wants to do that. How close are you with him today? What's your proximity to him? Are the flow of his words in your life producing divine fruit? Are you seeking after those words as your source of life? God wants to teach you how to do his types of things. I love that picture in the Bible. It's probably one of my favourite pictures of Jesus asleep in the boat when the storm is raging and the disciples are panicking. It keeps becoming my picture because Jesus is not doing nothing. That's the thing. To be able to sleep in the middle of a storm that most humans believe are going to kill everybody on the boat, it must be a reasonable storm. Jesus is doing something. He's sleeping. He's actually at such rest that the disciples had to go and wake him up. <laughs> Not, the boat wasn't waking him up. The waves weren't waking him up. They had to wake him up. I, I laugh because I've contemplated this so many times. It feels comical. It feels like we're in a Monty Python movie and Jesus is asleep. Everybody else is panicking and we're going back and the master, the, the creator of the universe, the one who actually spoke the words of sea, and separation, he's asleep. He's doing the one God thing that everybody should have been doing. In fact, he rebuked them in the end and said, you know, where's your faith? And if you read it from the outside, you can go, man, that's harsh. No, Jesus wanted to call them into a God response. The God response was, this is, we can either sit in this and sleep, or if you're really sick of it, if you don't really like it, why don't you rebuke it? But don't panic. Panicking is not the God thing. Panicking, running around, worrying and being concerned about everything, that's not the God thing. So he rebuked them for not doing the God thing. And for me, the God thing was either sleep or rebuke. Because Jesus was doing, obviously Jesus was doing the God thing. That's a no-brainer. But then when he got up, he, he met their need by speaking to the storm. But he could easily have said too, look, just calm down. Just come and sleep here with me, would you mind? He could have said that because that's where he was. That was the divine place he was living in. And he wants us to join him in the boat asleep in the storm. But if we're not ready for that yet, then he'll say, okay, then you use my authority and speak to the storm then. You tell the storm to go away. Can you see? God is not in the panic, but he's in the polarities of either authority or rest. That's so powerful. 
And you'll know when it's the right time to speak with authority and you'll know when it's the right time to rest. How will I know? Because you'll just know. The words that come from God, God will tell you when it's time for that. Right now I'm going to rest. Actually, no, I feel like the Lord says to speak to the storm. Now we're going to curse the storm. We're going to make this storm stop in Jesus' name. It's a great picture. The other picture I love too, it gets me chuckling, is the story where Elisha and Gehazi, in the Old Testament, the great prophet Elisha, is being, has gone up against the Syrian army. The Syrian army, the king of Syria, is constantly sick and tired of the fact that every time he goes against Israel, this guy called Elisha keeps telling the king of Israel and all the armies what his secret plans are. It's not because Elisha's in the court of the king, it's because God tells him. God says to Elisha, go and tell the king of Israel this. And so he tells the king of Israel this. He does his thing and the king of Syria can't defeat him. So they go, okay, hang on a minute. We're fighting the wrong people. Let's just go after Elisha. Let's get rid of Elisha and we should be right to get Israel. So they actually come up, the whole army encamps against Elisha. And Elisha's in his tent, just doing what he does. I don't know what he's doing in there, but he's in his tent. Gehazi, his servant, which always sort of reminds me, again, I see everything through Monty Python eyes. He's kind of doing his thing. Oh, very good. He's doing, running around and he comes outside. I don't know if he's that, I beg your pardon, I won't even go there. Um, but he comes out and he looks, at, you can almost see him do the double take and go, there's a whole army. And he comes back inside <laughs> and you can just sort of see him sort of tapping Elisha going, ah, there's a problem outside. It's a whole army. And, and Elisha says to Gehazi, just wait. God of heaven, open his eyes so he can see what I see. And Gehazi goes outside. And instead of seeing the army of Syria, he sees behind that the army of the Lord of hosts all around them. And Gehazi goes, oh. Oh, well, then we're okay. The posture of faith shifted like that. Why? Because he just saw something for the first time. See, that's what God wants for us. God wants to give you a picture. And that picture is a picture of faith. Come on, let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you. What an exciting life, God, you ask us to live. God, it's not always pleasant. It's not always easy. It's not always according to the script that we have written. But God is exciting when you're in the boat with us because supernatural stuff starts to happen because you are a supernatural God. God, you're teaching us as people to bring your God capacities into our lives. God, you want us to wait on you, to allow your perspective to shift on the inside of us something that needs to shift so that hope and faith can be birthed. Father, I pray today for every person that's here. God, would you help us shift our posture and bind ourselves to you in the weeks that lie ahead. God, that this year, Lord, let us live, Lord, a different tempo with you. Let us lean on you more than we ever did. God, let us take a step into you this year and remain there, I pray. God, we just thank you. You are the God who sees us, who loves us and will never leave us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
I'd love us to stand this morning. I'd just love us to sing a song for a minute as we close this morning. Izzy sang this song before. It was this song called Still. And, and my sense today is that it would be good for us to allow the words of this song to be a ministry moment for our own hearts. Just to allow whatever defences you feel have built up or whatever agitations or pressures you've felt like you've hung on to, just allow them to dissipate. Allow them to ebb and flow away. And allow yourself to open the heart, your heart towards God. These are simple things to do on the inside, but, but worth it, worth doing. Maybe you don't know this song. This is an older type song. There'll be some of you that might know it. It doesn't matter. You don't need to sing it necessarily, but allow the ministry of this to wash over you. Maybe singing it today would help you because there's a declaration in it. Then sing it. But I just want us to take a minute this morning just to do that. I know there'll be people here where this will be a good reset. Just a, re a reminder for you about how you're going to start 2022 differently than any other year before. Come on, let's just allow this to sing. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.